This is the Value Investor Podcast with Tracy Reinick. All things value, all the time. Welcome back, value investors. There's just a few weeks left in 2020. I know it's hard to believe, but we're, we're near the end of the year here. So you know what that means. Our end of the year podcasts are coming. These are the fun ones. They're the ones where I'm going to talk about what value investors should be buying in 2021, what are the hot areas, what are the cold areas, um, everything looking forward finally into 2021. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single podcast episode. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and a whole bunch of other places, but just find us somewhere. The Value Investor Podcast, as you know, it's easy and subscribe so you don't miss it. So, okay, moving on to this week's episode. I had a week off last week, and wouldn't you know it, the F, the 13F filings came out. And that's where the big money managers are supposed to tell us what they were buying and selling in the prior quarter. And usually for us value investors, that means tuning into some of the prominent value guys, and especially Warren Buffett, of course, at Berkshire Hathaway. And wouldn't you know it, of course, Berkshire Hathaway did make some significant moves in the third quarter. Warren Buffett has money to spend, and so he's going to deploy some of it. He's talked about this, but he has so much money, even the buys that he did do in the third quarter aren't really going to make a dent much in his cash hoard. But at least he's doing something with some of the money. And some of his uh, sells actually were even more intriguing, intriguing than the buys. So 2020, for me, looking at the Berkshire portfolio, um, had some really interesting moves in it this year. And a lot of that had to do with COVID. But I feel like we can learn some lessons from what Buffett is doing and what he did do already so far this year in his portfolio and use those to help us in our own portfolios. Because some of the issues he's encountering I know I've encountered, and I'm sure most of you have encountered, we're just on a different level. <laughs> we're not talking billions of dollars in our positions, but it's still the same type of investing quandary and issues. So I wanted to just look at everything he's done and try to figure out how that can make me a better investor. So first off, he sold all of his airlines when the pandemic hit. We've talked about this on prior podcasts because it was a big deal when he did it. One, he's always hated airlines since he had those losses in the 1980s on buying like US Airways and several others. He took losses and he said, never again, they're horrible businesses, right? And then it was surprising, suddenly in the last few years, he's buying all these airlines. Well, now when COVID hit and the airlines are in real trouble, he literally liquidated all of them almost immediately. And if you remember, he owned four airlines this year at the time. He owned Southwest, ticker LUV, and then the three legacy carriers, United, which is UAL, Delta, DAL, and American AAL. And I always had an issue with this because, um, you know, why own four of them, really? <laughs> the legacies mostly fly to the same locations. And then he had Southwest, which had its own niche. And so why not just own like a Southwest in one legacy? Why own all three of the large legacy airlines? 
or why not own another niche player like an Alaska or a Hawaiian and then maybe a legacy and then maybe Southwest. We'll never know why he chose to own all three legacies. But my problem with it was solved when he sold all of them. Yes, he sold them for a loss. And many people have attacked this move in subsequent weeks and months because the airline stocks are up off their spring lows quite considerably. But remember, Buffett buys the business, not the chart. He doesn't really care that they're up now. He cares that the business is still horrible. The airlines are still losing money. And there is no uh, next disaster aid package or stimulus, whatever you want to call it, so far. We haven't gotten one. Now everyone assumes the airlines are going to get more federal money. But that hasn't happened yet. And so we've seen them already reduce capacity. We've seen them lay off a, a large amount of employees. And so the business of the airlines is not good and probably won't be even back to pre-COVID levels for years. So he's looking at that aspect and says, nope, don't want to be in that and just got out of everything. So that's like a first lesson to learn. And I know I've talked about it on prior podcasts, but if something isn't working and it looks like it's not going to work for years, you know, why are you in it? Why are you owning that business that's going to struggle like that? So he didn't mess around. He just jumped out right away. You as a regular investor can jump out. Yes, we can take losses. You can offset some of that with some gains on the other side, possibly. And then you can um, you know, redeploy that money into something else that has a better profile going forward. And we now know that he deployed at least some more money in the third quarter. Now, um, we've also learned, interestingly, over the last several quarters now, that he's basically rotating out of his favorite trade of the last 20 years, which is the financials. He still has the big Bank of America position, Bank of America's ticker BAC, and it's now 10.6% of the portfolio. But he also owns shares in two of the other three big banks. And I've complained about this on prior podcasts, too. Why own three out of the four big banks? They all basically do similar things. They have different management, but they're going to move in you know, companionship with each other for the most part. Why do you need to own three out of the four? Now, the, the four big banks are Wells Fargo, ticker F, WFC. Uh, Citigroup, ticker C, Bank of America, and then J.P. Morgan Chase, ticker JPM. So those are the big four. So the other two he owned were Wells Fargo, WFC, again, is the ticker there, and then J.P. Morgan. Now, Wells Fargo is one of his older positions. He started buying that in the first quarter of 2001. So nearly 20 years he's been loyal to Wells Fargo, but he's slowly been selling off that position and it's pretty clear now that he may be out of it completely by 2021 management has changed there it's had all those issues over the last numerous years the shares have really lagged he clearly doesn't like what's going on in the business so he's almost out of it after his uh continued selling in the third quarter he had a three percent position it's now down to just 1.3 percent so we'll see if he actually gets out of that altogether 
And on JP Morgan, that's a more recent position, which I've talked about uh, just a couple of years ago on the podcast. He started buying into that in the third quarter of 2018. And now he's also basically almost completely out of that. So it was a 1% position in the portfolio in the second quarter. And now he sold 95% of what he has. And he's now down to a 0.04%. So it's almost nothing. It's virtually gone. I don't know why he didn't just sell out the full thing. Who knows? Um, But that one, I would not be surprised if he's completely out. Now, at the same time he was buying JP Morgan, he also bought a regional bank, PNC Financial, in the third quarter of 2018. This is when he was actually, you know, kind of going all in on the financials back in 2018. And this one used to be a 0.28% share PNC, and now it's down to 0.09%. So he sold 64% of that position. But again, this is another one I would not be surprised to see if it was just totally liquidated completely by 2021. So PNC Financial, ticker PNC. Now he did actually add a little bit to his Bank of America position. So he's not completely out of the big banks or um, you know reducing all of them, but he's doing what a smart portfolio manager should do, and he should have done it a long time ago. He was too overweight in this area and overweight in the big banks in particular. At one point when I've done this podcast on Berkshire Hathaway, he was at 55% of the portfolio was in financials. And that also includes his uh, non-bank financials like Visa and MasterCard, American Express, and those other stocks like that. But his bigger position was in the banks. It was like, you know, 25, 30 percent at least of uh, the portfolio at one point was simply banks. So that has been much reduced and is much smaller now. It's back well under 50 percent. And part of that is because um, Apple has now surged. So he's selling some of those positions and then Apple which is his largest position, is now up to 47% of the whole portfolio. Almost half is his Apple position because he first got in in the first quarter of 2016 when it was still really basically dirt cheap. The shares have soared in the last four years, and so it's, it's basically dominating the portfolio now. And it is what's driving the returns on the portfolio. So... Um, That's something to keep in mind, too. Many of you who own either Apple or other big tech stocks, a lot of you have like a big position in it. Now, he has not uh, taken big steps to reduce it, but in the third quarter, he did sell 3% of the position. But because the shares were still higher, it meant his uh, percent of the portfolio still went up, even though he did sell a small portion of it probably kind of to redistribute and make sure it's not, you know, totally dominating the portfolio. What you don't want to have happen is one position to be, you know, 60-70%. I don't care if it is Apple and he's very close to being at that 50% place with just one stock and that's pretty risky even again if it is a a stock a big tech name that pays a dividend and is doing share buybacks and seemingly is doing everything right with its fundamentals and the business. 
But um, this is another thing to keep in mind, another lesson that we're learning from 2020 that you need to pay attention to what your diversification is like amongst your entire portfolio because it's never good to be overweighted in one area because what's hot one year may not be the next. So you definitely want to have diversity in your portfolio and uh, Berkshire is a good example of that. So he has a ton of cash. Uh, maybe some of you do too. Maybe some of you, you know, you didn't take that vacation. So you've got some extra cash sitting there on the sidelines that you want to deploy. And so he started to look around what's cheap right now. And in the third quarter, there were a couple areas that were cheap. One of those was energy, but he's not really going more heavily into that. He owns some energy shares and companies in Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio that he owns outright. So he's not likely to add more into energy and just energy is out of favor. Never say never that he won't acquire an energy company outright with some cash, but the buying of the shares is probably not likely to happen, but we'll see going forward. Uh, but where else was he light in the portfolio? And it really was in healthcare. I was always struck by looking at it because financials were just so dominant that he really doesn't have that much healthcare exposure. And we've talked about the cheap big cap drug makers many times over the last few years on the Value Investor Podcast because they always were coming up in my screens, uh, especially the big, you know, obviously the big dividend payer ones. They always had that PE well under 15 and they were bent out of favor. So nobody was really paying them much attention. So they said all the value components that someone like a Warren Buffett or his lieutenants, his his guys who are also investing big chunks of the portfolio would look at. So the big drug makers do have classic value fundamentals um, in certain areas. And so that is attractive to a traditional value investor like a Warren Buffett. So that's what they did do in the third quarter. And I'm sure you've already seen the headlines. Obviously, it's been a couple of weeks now. I wanted to see what would happen after, you know, the uh, headlines died down and what happens with these shares. Should should you be buying these big cap drug makers? Like I said, they are cheap. I've talked about them on the show in the past. So I thought I'd take another look at some of them to see. And if you haven't owned them because they've been out of favor, should you be looking at them here? And, um, you know, what do they look like now? He's already gotten in. Some of them have started to move a bit. So are they still cheap enough for anyone else who does not own them to get in? So he bought four big drug makers in the quarter. One was just a small position and, and three others, well, they're all small relative to his portfolio, but one was a real small position. And the other three were all similar in size and like what I would say would be like his average type of position when he puts one on. So he can't buy in as much each quarter as you might think. Um, but these were, you know, he's he's definitely making a point that he's going into this direction. So the first one that was a small position was Pfizer, ticker PFE. 
And this one was is just 0.06% of the portfolio. So remember, he's down to 0.04% in JP Morgan now. So it's around the same size as what his JP Morgan position is right now. It was only $136 million. But Pfizer, it's in the news because of the vaccine, obviously. And it it's paying that dividend, yielding 4.2%. And the PE is fairly attractive, but shares um, you know, have come up off those lows. So it's still trading at 12.8 times. So that is in the value range that I look at, but it's not single digits or anything. So it's not exactly dirt cheap. So I took a look at the sales and earnings expectations for this year and next year. Obviously, we're almost in next year, so it's vital to look at next year as well. 2020 sales expected to be down 5.7%. 2022 earnings down 3%. A lot of this is COVID related because remember, people aren't going out and doing their healthcare needs while the pandemic is going on either. So you have that. But 2021 sales expected to be up 3.3%. And then earnings up 1.9%. So as I've always said about Pfizer, it just doesn't have a big growth profile. It's it's growing, but barely. That's why you want to get it as cheap as possible. That's the key. It's not a growth stock, so you better get it dirt cheap. And at 12.8 times, it's not super cheap here. Year-to-date, the shares are down 2.3%. And then five years they are at 16.7% over the five years. Think about that one for a moment because the S&P 500 during that time is up 48%. So really underperforming, that's why it's a value stock, right? Because it's been ignored by the street and everyone else and you've really been you know, taking it in the chin a bit even with a dividend by owning it if you were a buy and hold type investor over that amount of time. So that's Pfizer, P-F-E. Second one that he bought, and this is one of the bigger positions now, is AbbVie. A-B-B-V is the ticker here. A-B is in boy, B is in boy, V is in Victor. And I own this one in the value investor portfolio here at Zacks, and we've owned it at least over a year now because it has been cheap. Again, it's been ignored over uh, quite a considerable amount of time. The PE right now is at 9.9, so I like that. It's still cheap under that 10 times uh, place. And Abvi, um his position now is just 0.8, so it's a it's a little bit bigger. It's decent size, as I said, and he paid $1.8 billion to put it in there. So again, much bigger than the Pfizer position. Now, AbbVie is interesting because they recently closed on their deal uh, with Al- Allergon, <laughs> if I'm saying that right, Allergon, which owns Botox. And so a lot of these big drug makers they really don't have growth within their own drug portfolio. So they're going out there and they're making acquisitions to try to get growth that way. So when I looked at the sales, 2020 sales up 37.3%. That's the acquisition right there. But 2021 still expected to grow 17.5%. So I like that. That's that's good growth for any company on the sales side. Earnings 2020 up 17% again because the acquisition, but 2021 up another 
So suddenly we're getting some growth with this one, but still cheap. So I like that. Year to date, the shares are hitting new 52-week highs, especially after the Buffett announcement that they had bought in. And um, they're up 17% versus 12% on the S&P 500. So they are outperforming this year, but it was slow going there for the last year. They were definitely underperforming until only just recently. Five years, they're basically in line with the S&P 500, about 48% return over that five years. Um, So that's interesting, but you just could have bought the S&P 500 um, you know, in te- index, the ETF, and done about the same as owning AbbVie. But could this be the move everybody's been waiting the five years for, where it's going to outperform now that it's done this acquisition? It's always paid quite a nice dividend. And I think when we bought it in the value investor, it was up over 6% when we bought it in there. And right now it's yielding 5%. So that's pretty juicy as well, especially if I'm going to get this kind of earnings and sales growth. So it's about execution, it's about Botox and some of the other products that Allergan brought with them into the deal. And we'll see if it's able to um, you know, actually execute on all of this, but shares are still cheap. So I'm not surprised they took a big position in AbbVie with that growth trajectory. Okay, his third stock that he bought in the in the pharma land is Merck, ticker MRK. This is a similar size position, 1.8 billion, 0.8% of the portfolio. They're a little more expensive, PE of 13.5, but again, still a value. Sales, 2020 sales up 2.6%, 2021 up 7.4, so a little bit uh, better looking forward there in 2021 2020 earnings up 13 percent but 2021 expected to be uh just 2.9 percent so year to date these shares down 12.3 still because the growth areas are just not super robust there and five years though similar to AbbVie, in line with the s p 500 of about 48 percent it too pays a dividend a lot of these big drug companies do because they have to keep you loyal. There has to be a reason you're sticking it out or else you just would buy the S&P 500 ETF, which also pays a dividend. So this one, the dividend yield is 3.2, which is also pretty good um, in general versus what a lot of other dividend payers are doing right now. And Big Pharma's been historically pretty consistent on paying the dividends and not cutting even in times of stress like we saw in the Great Recession or here during the pandemic. They have the good cash flows, which Warren Buffett also likes. And so some of those dividends uh, you know, are in the aristocratic category where they've been paid out year over year. Uh, okay, so that's Merck. PE of 13.5, ticker MRK. And the fourth one he acquired was Bristol Myers. BMY is the ticker there. This is another cheap one under 10 with a forward PE of 9.9 as well, just like AbbVie. And I took a look at their sales and these are soaring. 2020 sales up 60.7%. 2021 expected to be up 81 
2020 earnings up 35% and then 2021 up 15%. So I was like, hmm, something had to be going on there, just like AbbVie. So I went to go look and um, sure enough, they bought Celgene recently and now that's been adapted into all of its numbers. So acquisitions matter and a lot of these big drug companies are consolidating because they need the growth from somewhere. So that's what we have here. But like AbbVie, I like it that the growth is expected to continue into next year, even after the acquisitions have been closed. So that's telling me that there's good synergies and something uh, good is happening behind the scenes, that they're able to grow both those sales and the revenues. Now, Bristol-Myers um, year-to-date is, again, underperforming, down 2.7% versus the S&P 500, again, up 12 over the five years, this one isn't even close. It's down 11.1%. So five years, you could have been getting the S&P 500 up 48%, or you're just, you know, going down, 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 down 11.1%. Uh, just as an aside, for those techie investors out there, the NASDAQ over the last five years is up 88%. So huge swing if you had decided, hey, I'm just gonna own Bristol Myers and hold it all those years. It does pay a dividend, so you were getting that 2.9% right now is that yield, but um, it would be really hard to stay in these shares over the last five years with this kind of underperformance. Now, interestingly, some of the insiders have been buying at Bristol-Myers because I own this one in the insider trader portfolio right now. So they were seeing an opportunity here with these shares still weak on the year, still down 2.7% to uh, buy in. They did buy in um considerable number of weeks ago, but still interesting that with this kind of underperformance over the last five years, some insiders are saying, hey, with a PE of 9.9 .9 and the you know 3% dividend and our sales and earnings looking up, maybe something good is going to happen here going forward. So insiders buying uh, can send a strong signal, as you know. So Bristol-Myers has had some of that and that's something to keep an eye on with any of these cheap stocks that you think are deals. I always look and see like, hey, are the insiders thinking it's a deal too? Because that um, matters to me because they know what's going on inside there. And if they, if they are jumping in on something that seems dirt cheap, then I start to question why not? Why aren't they greedy? Why am I the only one? No, they should be greedy too. So keep that in mind. Also, now that I've mentioned all the dividends, um, keep in mind that I know a lot of people want those dividends and they get sucked in by the higher dividends, but the dividend doesn't completely replace the stock that, you know, the share price performance and what goes on there. So again, um, don't just buy solely for the dividend because you, as a long-term investor, because you might wake up and have owned Bristol Myers for five years and be completely opposite where the rest of the stock market is. Now, that being said, Buffett is buying these four companies because the stock market has ignored them over the last five years. They're all cheap. They're all value stocks. A couple of them have those single digit PEs. They pay the nice dividend. They have the cash flows. No one's wanted to be in them because they've gone nowhere. 
Um, you start to have a little bit of a breakout in AbV now, but the rest of them pretty much no, haven't gone anywhere. You could just be in an ETF, so why not do that instead? But that is where value is found. And sometimes you do have to be patient, but again, it does matter where you buy in. You want to buy value as cheap as possible, especially a company that has low, low growth, like a Pfizer, where you're not going to make it up on the share end. So you need to have um, to get in as cheap as possible. So then the street ultimately does discover it and says, hey, this is really cheap. I need to buy some of this. And then you get uh, performance in the shares that way. But if you buy it too expensive, the street is not going to be interested in that low of growth with an expensive PE. It just is not. So keep that in mind. But there's a lot of lessons, again, to be learned here from what Buffett has been doing in 2020. So the first one is, remember, if something's not working, don't feel like you have to stay in it or wait for it to turn around. You can get out, take your losses. Yeah, it stinks. And redeploy that into other things that are not going to have Uh, the problems that whatever's going on in that particular industry or sector might be having. So that's what he did with the airlines. He's never going to look back. It doesn't matter how many times people tweet at him, oh, you could have stayed in, Warren, and you wouldn't have seen such a bad of losses. I'm up 40% or whatever. He doesn't care because he's buying the business. And if you're a long-term value investor, that's what you're doing too. Buy the business not the chart and think about where that business will be in three and five and 10 years from now and to determine your stocks that way. So that's the first clue. Number two, um, number two lesson is that don't let your portfolio get super dominated by one industry or even one stock. And he was overly invested in the financials which are underperforming and still are doing so. And so he's lightened up on that area too. He's not in love with any of his stocks. Yes, even Wells Fargo, which he once did kind of proclaim, um, you know, was one of his favorites, but that was years ago. Things change, management changes, business outlooks change. And so you have to change with it if you're running a long-term portfolio. So a stock he's owned for nearly 20 years, he may be almost completely out of at the 20-year mark. Remember, they bought it in first quarter of 2001. Well, we're coming up to first quarter of 2021. So don't be afraid to um, redistribute your portfolio if you become overly invested in one area. Yes, he even sold part of his Apple shares in order to keep Apple from totally dominating his portfolio, most likely. So keep that in mind um, that, you know, keeping an eye on what's really hot in your portfolio is important for risk management and um, to make sure the portfolio is running smoothly going forward. And then he made new additions with some extra cash. So if you've got some extra cash sitting around, maybe you should be taking a look too. Some of these uh, big drug stocks are cheap, are values here. And again, I already just went through them all. 
So it's up to you to do some further research to see if maybe some of these could work for you. But he is buying basically classic value stocks here, and uh, that's what he loves to do. So I'm not surprised that he's rotated finally into some of these big drug company stocks because uh, they fit the value profile and there is value still out there, even with stocks hitting new highs, even with the big rally off the coronavirus sell-off, there are still areas where people just hate it and they won't go into it, they won't invest in there. And the drug stocks are one of those. So keep that in mind. So there's a lot to learn from Warren Buffett here in 2020. I'll be interested to see what he says about it all on the next Berkshire annual meeting. I don't know if that one's going to be virtual or what, like the last one was. But, um, you know, he sat there taking online questions for three or four hours, and it was really great. So we'll find out more about what he's thinking about stocks, the stock market. He'll be on CNBC again, I'm sure, soon, sometime in, in 2021. And uh, we'll see where he stands on this very hot stock market and some of these value plays. So let me repeat all the tickers I talked about today because there are quite a few and um, I'll get you all of those. So we talked about the airlines, which I'm still not a fan of, even though they have rebounded because, again, the business is not good right here. But he owned and sold Southwest Airlines, ticker LUV, United is UAL, American is AAL, and Delta is DAL. He sold a little bit part of Apple, AAPL. He's uh, consolidating in his banks. And so he sold some of uh, Wells Fargo, WFC, JP Morgan, JPM, PNC Financial, PNC. And he added a little bit to Bank of America, BAC is the ticker there. And then the drug stocks he added, Pfizer, PFE, Bristol-Myers, BMY, Merck, MRK, and AbbVie, ABBV is in Victor. So there's a lot going on out there. And you, again, want to subscribe so you don't miss any of our end-of-the-year episodes because they're coming. So get us on Apple Podcasts, get us on Spotify, but get us somewhere. And I'll be back again next week with some more stocks. This material is being provided for informational purposes only, and nothing herein constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. Do not act or rely upon the information and advice given in this podcast without seeking the services of competent and professional legal, tax, or accounting counsel. Publication and distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and the information contained herein does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No recommendation or advice is being given as to whether any investment or strategy is suitable for a particular investor. It should not be assumed that any investments in securities, companies, sectors, or markets identified and described were or will be profitable. All information is current as of the date herein and is subject to change without notice. Any views or opinions expressed may not reflect those of Zach's investment research as a whole.